John 15. We are in our series from this chapter. And I was explaining in the first service that I originally was going to do a series after we were done with Colossians. I was going to do a a series on the spiritual disciplines. And then something occurred to me that I, I had something happen to me years ago where I was asked to speak at this Christian school banquet or something. And I gave some inane talk for 20 minutes about my opinions of Christian education. And after I was done and Janet and I got in the car, I, I told Janet, I go, I'm never going to do that again. And what it was, was me just giving my opinions about something. And I never opened up the word of God to, you know, exegete a passage because that's, that's my bread and butter. It's what I should be doing. And I didn't do that that day. And so when, when I thought about talking about spiritual disciplines, well, certainly we would open up the Bible, but you know, we like to just take a passage and, uh, and really dig in. And I, I feel like that John 15 would be a great jumping off point. And so we've, we're going to spend, you know, a few weeks in this passage. And then at the end, we'll talk about the spiritual disciplines. But this is a great context for that. We, we've talked about how Jesus has basically given an illustration of God is the vine dresser, Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches. And in this, he's saying that God graciously positions the branches for maximum fruitfulness, for maximum health. Now, if we lack in production, he picks up the branches, he prunes them, he does whatever is necessary so that they can have greater, greater fruit. Now, some of you might be wondering, well, what is the relevance of John 15? Well, think about it this way. I'm assuming that most of you in here are employed. I would assume that when you're on your job that you are at least interested in how you might improve in your job, of what advancement would mean, and making more money. I mean, who's not interested in that, right? I'm assuming that we all are in relationships or in a family. We all are interested in how we can improve in those relationships so that not only can others have greater fulfillment around us, but so that our hearts can be full as well. I'm assuming that most of us in here have worked out, and we're interested in how we can improve our workout scheme so that we can maximize that and be more effective at it. So in the same fashion, I think what Jesus is talking about here in John 15, he lays out for us how we can have increased effectiveness, increased fruitfulness. How could any Christian not be interested in that? That is what he's talking about. So we can learn what he expects from us. We learn what his disposition is toward us. And we recognize his invitation for intimate fellowship. And this is what this, is, this book, or I should say this chapter, is about. This is not a chapter about salvation. It's a chapter about fellowship. And there's a difference. From the book Sacred Romance, some of you have probably read this, comes this quote from Brent Curtis. He says this, If I'm not abiding in Jesus, then where is it that I abide? I once asked myself, I began to notice that when I was tired or anxious, there were certain sentences I would say in my head that led me to a familiar place. The journey to this place would often start with me walking around disturbed, feeling as if there was something deep inside that I needed to put into words but couldn't quite capture. I felt the something as anxiety, loneliness, and a need for connection with someone. 
if no connection came, I would start to say things like, life really stinks. Why is it always so hard? It's never going to change. If no one noticed I was struggling or asked me what was wrong, I found my sentences shifting to a more cynical level. Who cares? Life is a joke. Now, surprisingly, by the time I was saying those last sentences, I was feeling better. The anxiety was greatly diminished. My comforter, my abiding place, was cynicism and rebellion. From this abiding place, I would feel free to use some soul cocaine, watching a violent video with maybe a little sexual titillation thrown in, having more alcohol with a meal than I might normally drink, things that would allow me to feel better for a little while. I had always thought of those things as just bad habits, and I began to see they were much more. They were spiritual abiding places that were my comforters and friends in a very spiritual way. The final light went on one evening when I read John 15:7 in the message by Eugene Peterson. It's translated, if you make yourselves at home with me and my words are at home in you, you can be sure that whatever you ask will be listened to and acted upon. Jesus was saying in answer to my question, I have made my home in you, Brent, but you still have other comforters you go to. You must learn to make your home in me. Let's stand as we look at John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And Father, this is what I pray for these, my dear brothers and sisters, that our joy would be full that we could abide in you. Lord, I know that there are many who are troubled. Give them rest, rest of the soul. May we learn to abide. May we leave transformed. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. This wasn't the first time that Jesus talked like this. Earlier, Jesus said in John 13, verses 10 and 11, he said this to Peter. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. What Jesus is saying is that Peter didn't need to take a bath 
because he metaphorically was already clean. His sins were forgiven. He had experienced salvation. He was in the family of God. Jesus didn't need to be cleansed because he had never sinned. Conversely, Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, was not a believer, was not cleansed. And to be cleansed or washed was a way then for Jesus to describe salvation or the forgiveness of sins. So when he says to them in John 15, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you, he's saying the disciples have been forgiven of their sins because they have believed the words of Jesus. And some of those words certainly included, for God so loved the world, right? That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should what? Not perish, but have everlasting life. Already you were clean. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for a part From me, you can do nothing. The first thing I want us to recognize is those three little words, abide in me. This is in the Greek, an imperative, an imperative. That means it's a command. It's something that we need to do. An imperative mood is not an expression of reality, but it's an expression of possibility, of volition. In other words, abiding is not a guaranteed experience for the Christian. He's encouraging encouraging them to participate in the abiding. In fact, he he is commanding the abiding. It's a way of saying that God is not going to force his fellowship upon us. We can enter into it freely or we can reject the fellowship. And in a sense, fellowship and abiding we can use synonymously. This is not an invitation for salvation, Because Jesus has already established that the disciples were clean. It's an invitation for deep fellowship, just like in Revelation 3, where Jesus says, I knock at your door. I want to know whether you open the door where I can come in and sup with you. It's not a salvation invitation. It's a fellowship invitation. I want to have intimacy with you. Will you let me in so that we can have an, an honest talk? We can have deep fellowship. Fellowship and salvation are two different things, right? They're a child of God. That's not going to change. This is an invitation for deep fellowship, which can change. We can be out of fellowship with God, even though we could still be a Christian, right? It's not the same thing. It doesn't mean that we've lost our relationship with God because we're not in fellowship with him at the moment. Have you ever been at odds with your spouse? Stupid question, right? But are there times that that, that communication wanes where distance is between you, right? But that person doesn't cease to be your spouse. Same thing here. So to abide is to maintain a vital, life-giving connection with Christ the vine. And what this passage says is that you will not bear fruit by yourself, out of fellowship with Jesus. It's not going to happen. Now, you might think you can fake others out about, you know, your Christianity. But Jesus just says, 
you are not going to be rewarded. There's going to be no fruit, no real spiritual fruit. In fact, he goes so far as to say, you can do nothing when you're not abiding. What does that mean? You can't do nothing. Does that mean I can't walk the street if I don't abide? Does that mean I can't do daily chores unless I'm singing hymns or praying? No, that's not what he means. It means anything we do outside of abiding in Christ will not amount to anything in the spiritual sense. It will have zero spiritual fruit. You can do nothing that will affect the kingdom. You can do nothing that will be rewarded. You can do nothing in terms of of, of genuine spiritual activity that's to the plus when you are out of fellowship with Christ. It's what is meant in Philippians 4.13. We often read this verse like I can leap tall buildings at a single bound, do anything that I desire. But this is what he says. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The emphasis is on Christ, that in all things I can depend upon him, I can abide in him in anything that I do. The emphasis is on the relationship with Christ. It's not like, you know, Christ is a genie in the bottle and whatever I want, he's going to help me get it. It's not the point. Christ is the source of life, He's the source of our fruitfulness. And so this idea goes to our our dependence upon Christ. Now the fact is, is that we can live the Christian life on our own without any conscious effort. And many Christians do that. Without any conscious effort of, of depending upon Christ, of Christ being our source. So we can... We can be self-serving in the Christian life. Is a person a Christian? Sure, they can be. Now, I'm not saying everybody is because we talked last week about there are some who are posers, right? They've never really had a genuine Christian experience, but that's really not what Jesus is talking about here in John 15. It's about the person who's self-serving, not abiding. Abiding Christians understand that the the secret to fruitfulness is not religious self-effort. And it got me to thinking, how do I know that my flesh is ruling at the moment when it comes to living my Christian life? Now, we could probably talk all day about this because I have so much experience at it. And frankly, so do all of us in terms of churches that we participate in. And, you know, it's just part of walking in the flesh. And all of us have done it. Some ways that I see it in my own life, for instance, is that Uh, we could value outward performance more than we should. You see this with legalism. I started evaluating people's uh, spiritual performance, you know, based on, look at the way that person dresses. I can't believe they went to that movie. Did you you know he drinks? Okay. And we use all these things to make ourselves feel just a little bit more superior than the next guy. And so we focus on, on outward things. Now, not that you can't have outward convictions, we all should. We all ought to think about, you know, how we relate to the world that way. But the point is, is that we try to grade people's spiritual temperature just on the outward stuff. That's a pretty good indicator we're operating in the flesh, all right? The other is that when we don't get others' approval, that's a pretty good indication we're operating in the flesh. You ever served somewhere, ever done something, and nobody came up to thank you? And then you might leave, yeah, I'm never doing that again. Well, why were you doing it in the first place? Did you have to get an attaboy? 
And, and that's a good indication that we might be operating. You know, one of the things I've seen about this, by the way, is that I'm a pretty poor evaluator of what God uses and what he doesn't in, in, in terms of this. And what I mean by that is that if you've ever taught or been involved in any kind of ministry, you can go into something, man, you're just not feeling it. And, and you're just thinking, man, that really bombed, right? And then you can have 10 people come up to you and say, man, God really used that today. Thank you so much for that. And you're thinking, what? Well, that just shows you and reminds you, this wasn't about you. And, and conversely, you might think, man, this is hot stuff today. I've really got a good one. And then it's like crickets, all right? You can just hear it. You, you never can really tell for sure what God is going to use or not use. But what you can tell is the state of your own heart. And that's what we really have to look at here. So abiding Christians understand that the secret to fruitfulness is not religious self-effort, but rather consciously, listen, consciously depending on Christ to live his life through us. And I know how this sounds, if I was sitting where you're sitting, it sounds so Sunday schooly, so like up here, and it, and, and it seems irrelevant or just out there. But what I want to try to do is, is bring it down to, or not, not down, I don't that sounded condescending. I don't mean it that way. But just to bring it to where we can understand what this concept means. The more we focus on Christ, listen, the more we focus on Christ, depend on Christ, the more fruitful we become. All right, that's, that's the whole tenor of John 15. 2 Corinthians 4.10 says that the life of Jesus is manifested in our bodies. Think of that. The very life of Jesus is being manifested through our bodies. Why? Because he's our resource for the Christian life. 1 John 5, 11 and 12 echoes the same truth when it says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. This life is in his son. Whoever has the son has the life. Whoever does not have the son does not have it. Again, in Galatians 2, 20, I've been crucified with Christ. I have died to the things that I previously put my hope in, I have died to the religious self-effort, and it is no longer I who live. It's not self-effort. But Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That is, the essence of the Christian life is living in light of Christ in me to live his life through me. Now, some folks get the idea that when you talk like this, you know, you're going you're gonna to sit in your lazy boy and not do anything. Well, I would suggest that that's not the way it is. That dependence upon Christ takes a conscious, concerted, deliberate effort. We have to say no to the flesh and yes to Christ. Now, the flesh we could just say it's synonymous with dependent upon self, that self-effort. This is what 1 Peter 2.11 says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. What does that mean? Th- this world is not our home. We live in a system that is self-effort, and we cannot be a part of it in terms of buying into its philosophy. So I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, Sojourners and exiles understand that, but if you're a part of the world system, giving into the flesh is just how it should be, which wage war 
against your soul. There is a war going on, so I would suggest we cannot be passive about that. Romans 8.5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. There's a conscious effort to what we focus on, think about. All right, that's deliberate. Romans 13.14, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It's like the guy that told me one time that he went to a strip club to witness. I said, yeah, right. All right. That's making no, that's making a provision for the flesh. This is not a passive thing to try to win a war with the flesh. Does this sound to you like it's passive? That you're at war? No, no. It's a conscious, concerted effort to set our minds on the spirit to make no provision for the flesh. Now listen, when we gratify the flesh, let's talk about this for a second. When we gratify the flesh, we turn away from God's design. We believe the world system. And when our minds are set on the flesh, you know what happens? We find the things about spiritual things, godly things, people who talk to us, great on us like sandpaper because we're in the flesh. And when this goes unchecked, when we are fleshly for a long period of time, you know what happens? We become in bondage to those things. And some Christians, in fact, embrace this so much to the point that they find their identity in the sin. In other words, the Christian who has a drinking problem is known and is identified as an alcoholic. The person who's on drugs... He's an addict. Now, if those are descriptions of an action, that's one thing. But when you're identified as that, well, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm John the addict. I'm John the alcoholic. You know what? You know what the Bible says? You are a new creation in Christ. You are the son or daughter of the living God. That is a new identity. Behold, these old things die. All becomes new. I have a new identity in Christ. That is how I need to identify myself. So when I set my mind on the flesh, I'm identifying myself with with the sin. When I set my mind on the spirit, I'm identifying myself as a child of God. Don't you think one is going to make a big difference in how we think about those things and how we live our life? You better believe it does. Sin does not define us. Christ is our identity. But we are in so, so much bondage sometimes. Let's say, let's just use sexual impulses for an example. They rule the heart so that the idea of saying no to the flesh, you are seen as a complete idiot and prude. That is just not how the world operates. I mean, who wants to be the prude, Right? I mean, the the world embraces this so much to the point it can't even see its own bondage. And, you know, they make the excuse that I'm born that way, which actually I agree with. We are all born into sin. So we are all in bondage to sin. That I would agree with. We're all born into sin. But that doesn't mean when I'm in Christ, I can no longer say no to that because I have a new identity in Christ. I can say no to the flesh. But what they mean, when I'm born into sin, there's nothing I can do about it. Or they don't say I'm born into sin. They just say I'm born that way. I'm born with this proclivity. 
I could do nothing about it. Every time the urge comes, I have to obey it. Well, that makes you more like a dog than it does a human being in Christ. You know, every time the urge comes, it's like, <laughs> gotta do it, gotta do it. All right. But what, what a Christian does is says, you know what? There is, there is freedom now in Christ. I have the ability to say no to the temptation. The world system embraces this idea of the bondage. Paul said in Romans, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your bodies as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. I'm not identified with the sexual sin. I'm identified in Christ. But those who are identified with the sin, they flaunt it. They want rights to do it. They want to parade it. And all the while, they are enslaved to their own desires. In the midst of this battle with the flesh, Christ then enters the heart of the believer at salvation, and he gives every one of us who are Christians, every one of us, the resource to live according to the will of God through the power of Jesus Christ who resides in us. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And as believers, we now have a choice. We didn't have a choice before. We now have a choice. We can choose to abide in Christ and fellowship with him, or we can choose to follow the flesh or the worldly system. Now, let's just practically say how this might work itself out. Now, I'm going to use marriage. I know not everybody's married, but you could use this in terms of any any really relationship. You could use this in terms of a job. Let's say that you have a need that is not met in marriage. It could be an emotional one. It could be a physical one, any kind of need. How does our flesh usually respond to when we have a need that is not met? Usually what we like to do is we'll first pout a little bit, put on the silent treatment, hoping that the amazing Kreskin as a spouse we have can guess why we're pouting, okay, and, and, and figure it all out. Or we might manipulate, we might scream, okay? We're trying to force the person to, to meet our needs so that we can get our way. We might condemn, how come you never, how come you always? That's the flesh at work. The flesh is very demanding, right? Now, there are certainly needs that we need to have met, and there are certainly ways that we can communicate that. We can say, you know, honey, hey, here's a need I have. I'd love to have you meet it, if possible, all right? But if that person doesn't, what do we do? Well, we usually can operate in the flesh, or we can choose to rely upon Christ you realize this, that if that spouse does not meet that need, you know what? My world's not going to fall apart. It's really not. I mean, I can entrust my life to him who is my rock in any circumstance, in any disappointment. And it gives us a platform of security to operate in our relationships instead of approaching one another through this sense of insecurity that I have to have this, I have to have you, or I'm going to fall apart. Here are the facts. 
And I know this may seem cold, and I don't mean it to sound cold, but you kind of have to get to the end of your rope to realize this. I mean, I love my wife, and I think there are many things that, that, that she can do that no other person can do for me, right? I understand that. But if she were to die, if my kids were to die, if my grandkids were to die, as horrible as that would be, as hurtful as that would be, could I make it? Yes. Would I still be secure in Christ? Yes. Now, there'd be incredible pain, but I could make it, and God would be my security. I don't want to do that. (laughs) I get that, but I could. But see, we live like I have to have this right now. Not only do I have to have it, I have to have it right now, because if I don't, all right, all hell is going to break loose, right? Because that's the way we normally act. I don't know, maybe it started when we were a kid. We always got our way. I don't know what the root of it is, but the Bible calls it sin, flesh, demanding. But for the Christian, we realize that Christ is there. I can entrust myself to him even in the midst of the disappointment. So here are three practical ways, and we start off with this one. Practical ways that we can abide. When we abide, we choose to rely upon Christ to sustain us when needs go unmet or circumstances go awry. Again, our flesh wants to condemn, uh, manipulate, demand when others disappoint us. Uh, We depend, though, when we abide in Christ upon the promises, the power, the presence of Christ in that moment. And we can find rest in him even in the disappointment. I didn't get the job I wanted. Uh, That money never came through. The house fell through. We got in a wreck. The doctor said the test was positive. My spouse said they're leaving. All these scenarios that many of us have experienced, God is still there. We can depend upon Christ in that moment. We're going to be okay. Turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. I want us to look at the life of Israel and see what God was trying to teach them as they were in the wilderness. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy 8. It says this, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord, your God, has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he's saying that these hard times had a purpose, and and God was wanting to to reveal to you what was going on on the inside. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. So he provided for them. They had a need, but he provided for them. What you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Wow. So I got these immediate needs, but there are some things that are more important. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. What does he mean by that? Even in the simple things of life, clothing, now they were walking all those years across the desert. Do you notice your feet didn't swell? Do you think that was an accident? Don't you think I was there? See, here's the thing I think is being said. 
in the everyday things that we have. You got a job? Who do you think provided that? Who do you think gave you the ability to do that job? You got a family? Who blessed you with that? Are you breathing? Who do you think gave you life? The everyday things of life, God is intervening to provide. And we completely overlook that, that when things go awry, we say, God, how come you're not answering my prayer? God, how come you're not here? God, how come you're silent? And God is saying, I was there all along. I provided all these other things for you. You just didn't see it was me. You thought you did that on your own, but that's me providing for you. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. See, this is what he wants for us. Listen to this, a land of, of brooks, of water, of fountains. See, many people think, and they're buying into the world system of flesh, that if I go God's way, I'm not going to get my immediate needs. And God is just trying to keep happiness for me. Because see, we got it all figured out about what makes us happy, don't we? Really? We don't even know what the next minute brings. You really think you know what's going to truly fulfill your heart? That's God. God's the one that designed you, that created you. Don't you think he knows that better than you do? For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains, of springs, flowing out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, vines, fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, out of whose hills... You could dig copper, and you shall eat and be full. You shall bless the Lord God for the good land he has given you. Wow. Such a wonderful passage. Check your clothes. Check your feet. You think God has abandoned you? He's been providing for you all along. You were able to walk through this wilderness, and I provided for you food, water, the ability to walk. Let us not take for granted God's provision. Continue to trust him that he is there. Continue to depend upon him. See, maybe he allows us to go through that trial. You know why? Maybe he's doing his best work to reveal to us those things that we have depended on and to turn our attention to him. Does he do all this because he gets his jolly out of punishing us and watching us squirm? Of course not. He does this because he wants what is best for us to walk in his will, to have our attention fixed upon Christ. And we learn how to abide. Second way we can abide is we choose to love God and others no matter the situation. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love, John 15, 9. And then it's added in 1 John 4, 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now, I realize it's difficult for us to maybe continue to abide in Christ when we're really disappointed in God. But we have to realize that God's love is not fickle like the wind. Ours is. Because when people tick us off or they disappoint us, you know, we just don't feel it. You know, there's a common thing, well, I've fallen out of love with so-and-so. Well, that's because you look at love as an emotion. It's very fickle, all right? But we learn that God's affection as we abide doesn't change. He tells us clearly 
it becomes a foundation for us in other relationships. The Bible says we love because what? He first loved us. Think about that for a second. The, the fact that we know that God loves us, that we are secure in his hands, becomes a foundation for us in relating to other people. You know why? Because other people will always disappoint. Always disappoint us. So my relationship with God becomes that foundation where I can continue to love. That 1 Corinthians 13 type of love. Love bears all things, right? You know what I'm talking about? Endures all things. You can't do that in your own strength. You can only do that when your heart is filled with the love of God. That's the most important love that could ever be established for us, and that's what we have in Christ. So we have to learn how to rest in him, grow in his love. We abide that way. Thirdly, we abide when we persevere in obedience and faithfulness. You are my friends if you do what I command you, John 15, 14. It's really a common theme throughout the New Testament, that we know that we love God when we are obeying. There's no such thing, listen, there is no such thing as a person who's in active disobedience and in fellowship with God. How people like to fancy themselves, you know, me and God are this close as I'm sleeping with my mistress. I don't think so. There is no such thing as a person who is in active disobedience and in fellowship with God. They are completely incongruent. Fellowship is about intimacy and the health of the relationship. It's abiding. It's separate from us being a Christian. So when you are abiding in Christ, the obvious outflow is going to be you want to please him. Now, I realize that there are people who take advantage of God's grace. And they think they can just do whatever they want and God is going to forgive them. That's only because they don't understand, they've been deceived. But God's grace, when it's properly understood, is an impetus for obedience. Because I realize God has been so good to me, I want to respond in love, obedience, worship to him. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's pray.